Formula One and the US are falling in love with each other. In Miami and Austin this year, and in Las Vegas in 2023, the grandstands will be packed with passionate race fans. But right now, there are no American Formula One drivers for US fans to cheer. The most recent was Alexander Rossi. I got to, as an American kid, ultimately race in Formula One. Being American in Formula One, to be able to compete in front of your home crowd is an amazing thing and an amazing feeling. Alex raced in five Grand Prix in 2015, but his Formula One story is one of dreams, drama, false starts, promises and political games. If a few things had happened differently, he could have stayed in Formula One for longer. There are commitments and there are things that were said and done and paths that ultimately didn't happen for one reason or another. And, and that's kind of the, the disenchanting thing about it, but that's the way life goes. Today, Alex's life is all about IndyCar, but he's a huge Formula One fan with an incredible F1 story to tell. Welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. When I chatted to Alex, he was at home in Indianapolis. That's where his IndyCar team, Andretti Autosport, is based. And of course, it's the home of the Indy 500, which Alex dramatically won as a rookie in 2016. But for years before he switched to American open-wheel racing, Alex lived and raced in Europe. Wins in junior racing series opened the door to Formula One, first as a test driver for the Caterham team in 2012, and then as a test and race driver for MANA, a small British team at the bottom end of the competitive order. The period before he made his Grand Prix debut was dramatic and tragic. The loss of his friend and MANA teammate Jules Bianchi in 2015 hit Alex hard. It was in the period after Jules's death that Alex finally achieved his childhood dream of racing in Formula One, and he tells that story really powerfully. At his core, Alex is a guy who just loves racing, and he's driven in pretty much every type of race, from the Indy 500 as teammate to Fernando Alonso, to winning the Daytona 24 hours, to flipping a truck in the insane Baja 1000 in Mexico. I hope you enjoy our conversation, which started with Alex's reflections on his five Grand Prix at the end of 2015. Oh, they were amazing. It was a dream come true in, in so many ways. And to be able to kind of debut at Singapore, a, a, an event that has so much kind of going for it in terms of just the glamour of, you know, the Singapore Grand Prix and, and that track is, is very unique in its own right. Um, and then to be able to race in Austin. On, on the topic of Singapore, there I've got this great memory of, there was a safety car, wasn't there? And I seem to remember that at the restart, you were lying like P three, yeah, yeah, <laughs> in your in your little um, manor, Marussia. Yeah, um, no, it was true. So we 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 did the restart, and I don't think we had hit it yet or something. And Raikkonen was behind me, and it was Alonso was in front of me, and it was just cool for a straightaway, you know, <laughs> to kind of be to kind of be with with them because most of the five races that, that I did, I, I was pretty much by myself. Um, you know, Will Stevens was in the other, was in the other car and he was, on, he was the only person that you were racing against. Um, you know, that being said, Austin was a, was a pretty good result for us. I think had we hit, put on slick tires a, a couple laps sooner, you know, we were running in the points for the latter half of, of that race. I think we had an opportunity to maybe get some points in that one, but all that being said, it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience to be able to be an American in Formula One, to be able to, to race it you know, five very special tracks and, and to kind of just fulfill that, that journey. You know, there was a lot of expectations of what that was going to lead into in 2016, none of which ultimately came to fruition, but I was very fortunate and very blessed to have the IndyCar opportunity with Andretti kind of present itself. And it ended up being an amazing thing for, for me and my career. Certainly was. You can't only go and win the Indy 500 in 2016. But that Austin race, you finished 12th. As you said, you ran in the points for a bit. You said afterwards that it could be the start of great things. That quote from you sort of stayed with me for a while because I suddenly thought, OK, the momentum's building. People are starting to take notice of this guy. Did, were you feeling that at that point? 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think for any sports person, whether it's in motorsports or football or, or whatever, like to be able to to compete in front of your home crowd, your home audience is, is an amazing thing and an amazing feeling. And at that point, it was the, the best result that the team had had in the 2015 season. Um, it was obviously very, very challenging for them for a lot of reasons, you know, with the, the history that they had had the year before with, you know, not only the change of ownership, but but obviously the incident that happened with Jules. And it was just a, it was kind of a, a breath of fresh air for the team to kind of get a, a semi-decent result. And we were immediately going to Mexico. There was a lot of conversations happening for me internally with the team. And there was just a lot of momentum and a lot of very positive things that were happening, uh, looking towards the future. Um, we were kind of still in the championship fight, I believe at this point um, in GP2. Um, we had won a couple races. So everything was kind of on a really good trajectory at that point in 2015. And, and obviously to have a good weekend in Austin at home in front of home, home fans, even though it was a miserable wet weekend for most of it, um, was, was a really rewarding thing. <laughs> it was like the worst weather, I think, almost as bad as, as Spa, uh, Belgian Grand Prix last year where we didn't get going. But for that 2016 season, you're just talking about that momentum. I remember... Manor being linked to Mercedes engines. They were for 2016, yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that? That was still the engine to have. Yeah, it, it, was, it, it turned out to be, you know, a pretty decent car. You know, Pascal Wehrlein and, and Rio Harianto ended up racing that car. And I think it was um, in Austria. Like, I think they got points. The car was, was a huge step up from what we had in 2015, because you got to remember in 2015, that was just the 2014 car. Um, you know, there were so many issues that they had even just to survive as an organization. The last thing they could do was build a new car for 2015. So Will and I were, were truly racing for the smallest team on a year old equipment, um, which as we all know in Formula One is, isn't really uh, the way to do things. If you, I mean, just take take the Haas program, for example, this past year, you know, it's, it doesn't matter who you are or, or what team you are. If, if you're kind of putting off development towards, you know, the, the future or whatever, and, and the car that you bring to the track is, is a year old, it's just, it's just not going to get the job done. So look, the, the, the manner thing didn't happen for 16. Did you talk to Haas, you know, the American team coming in? It, it seemed to me to be the obvious fit. Alexander Rossi in a Haas for 16. Yeah. So there was, there was some conversations and then in Monza of 2015, without mincing any words, it was basically from management. We are not interested in you. We don't think any Americans are qualified to race in formula one at this point and you're best to go off and go your own way. And that was, that was the conversation. So Manor had a very different kind of feeling towards me. I kind of switched from the catering program as a test reserve driver, whatever you want to call it, to Manor in 2014, kind of in the middle of 2014. And my relationship with everyone there was phenomenal. And, you know, I think that I was able to, to gain more respect there in, in those kind of eight to 12 months than I ever did at Caterham over a three-year period. And it was it was just a, a great team and a team that ultimately I wanted to have the opportunity to, to race for um, that was provided to me. But yeah, the Haas, the Haas conversations were very short and, and to the point. There's no violin that, that I look for. It's just a, a part of the sport. And ultimately the, the thing that, that I, if I had to say that I had a problem with something is, is purely just the, you know, there are commitments and there are things that were said and done and and paths that ultimately didn't happen for one reason or another. And, and that's kind of the, the disenchanting thing about it, but that's the way life goes. Um, and, and that's the way that it works. But we see it even even over here in the States in IndyCar. It's it's to a lesser lesser scale, obviously, but the budgets are are much less. So it all kind of makes sense. Um, but ultimately we haven't seen an American in a Haas car in seven years forget me like they haven't put anyone in what about bernie bernie eccleston was he helpful bernie was was incredibly helpful um he was a a great confidant and someone who was was influential in, in a lot of in a lot of aspects and my father and him had a had a wonderful relationship and the the thing that him and i really appreciated 
about him was the fact that, you know, if, if we asked for a favor, if we asked for some help, you know, trying to, to get something done, he would either say, no, I'm not, I can't do that. Or yes. And like that, it was just, it was black and white with him. Like if he's, if he could do something and he was willing to do it, he would do it. And if he couldn't, he, he wouldn't. So you never were left kind of in that waiting period of, oh, we'll all get back to you next Thursday. And then, oh, I got busy. So we'll talk after the weekend. And it wasn't that kind of continuation. It was yes or no. Um, and, and he was, he was crucial to, to me staying in the world of formula one for as long as I did. And I think he was also very beneficial in, in helping me, you know, make my race debut. Now I've got this theory that I think you arrived in formula one a few years too early. When you look at the Netflix bounce, we've now got two races, uh, in the U S this year. Do you th- I think the appetite is greater now. And I think if you were arriving now, might have been a different different story what do you think to that i think that's that's very true i think you know when we look at 2012 was when austin came back on the schedule when when formula one was returning to the u.s to have a race and there was there was excitement about that um there was excitement internally in formula one because you know a lot of those people loved america and they loved the the scene that that america and and texas can provide and there, there obviously was interest from the manufacturers because ultimately you look at a Mercedes and a Honda and a whatever it was. I don't know if BMW was in, but you look at these German, you look at these manufacturers and all their car sales are in the United States, right? So it makes sense for them. It made sense for a lot of the internal people that were involved in Formula One, but it hadn't quite, the audience in the US hadn't quite been convinced i think and with that there wasn't access to american sponsorship dollars um, because formula one was still a relative unknown in the states and i think that that's obviously dramatically shifted in the past year year and a half i think the the netflix series was a wonderful but b very good timing to come out in the middle of a pandemic when people didn't have much to watch right so i think that it, it all worked out in a very very good way for formula one and i love to see it you know have you enjoyed the series i, I have i have 100 and, and a small part of me is a little bit like you said resentful that i think we were a couple years early but ultimately i'm a formula one fan i grew up a formula one fan i i stand by the fact that i think there needs to be american representation in the sport there is an american team in some sort of fashion in in the series there's obviously the interest from from my boss michael andretti you know we see oracle coming on with a huge partnership with red bull so so it is building and it is exciting to see and it's only a matter of time before there's an american driver gosh there's an awful lot i just want to ask you about everything you've just said first up if the opportunity presented itself again would you come back to formula one highly unlikely um, you know, I, I, I have a lot to accomplish in IndyCar. Um, the past two years have been, I had not been good in terms of just a timeline of goals and objectives that I have. And so I, I need to make up a little bit for lost time, um, from that standpoint, but I'm just very, very content in, in IndyCar. I love the, what it is, you know, it's just, it's pure pure racing. It's what I fell in love with as a kid growing up. There's very minimal politics. I still believe without a doubt that Formula One is the pinnacle. It's the best cars, the best tracks, best teams. Like there's no questioning that. I just love the the competition and just the the almost grassroots feel that the IndyCar is. Now I'm gonna just throw some stats at, at people who aren't aware. You won the Indy five hundred first time you entered it. Made it look quite easy. Fuel saving, what's that? Uh, you won that in 2016. You've had seven wins since then, six poles, 25 podiums, etc. What else have you got to achieve in IndyCar, actually? You've won races. You've won the yeah. big one. Yeah. Um, you know, we need to win a championship. Like, it's been... We were, we were close in 18. We finished second. We were semi-close in 19, finishing third like anyone in this, in this sport, you know, you can look back at six or seven wins that got away from you, but ultimately we, we need to win more races and championships. And, and, you know, I want to at least win one championship, if not two. And, and that's my main goal. You know, I, I was very lucky to kind of cross the Indy 500 off the, the list quite early. Obviously I'd love to win that again, but that's not, that's not a 
goal or priority of mine. Like I'm, I'm here to win races and championships. Indy 500 then, you win it. How does winning something like that change your life? Ultimately, it doesn't, it doesn't change, change your life from a, from a personal standpoint. But what it does is, for me, I was on a one-year deal with Andretti Autosport. The sponsor that we had, Nap Auto Parts, was on that car for that one race. I had a very, very new and beginning relationship with Honda and Honda North America. And what, what winning the 500 did was it cemented all of those relationships. And it gave me these partners that I now have for the past well now this is year number seven um with the same team with the same partners with the same engine manufacturer and they've been hugely helpful in in helping me achieve what i'm trying to achieve in any car so all of those things were a result of the of the 500 but for me alex i got a lot of cool things i got a cool trophy <laughs> um i get introduced at motorsports events as a maybe 500 winner but other than that it, it for for me it just really helped cemented my career in the united states Sort of like, uh, I mean, the S word, stability. Is that is that fair? Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And I think that, you know, being an Indy 500 winner in the IndyCar paddock does provide you a little bit of stability in the sense that, you know, that's that's a huge race for the owners. It's very important to them to find drivers that can run well there um, and, and are successful there, even though it's just one race of a, of a 17 race schedule. It's it is the big one. It is the one that means the most in terms of dollars, eyeballs pride so it is it is very beneficial to be good around indianapolis for sure and and alex you did something that fernando alonso couldn't right he turns up the following year gets close admittedly but doesn't win it what did you make of fernando's effort yeah i mean so i i, I got to work with him so he was he was the the additional car that we ran at andretti and um he was a teammate and, and i think he did a great job i think it was so it was 2017 and that was the final year of the manufacturer aero kits. Um, in 2018, we all went to a spec aero kit. And quite frankly, Honda had by far the best package for speedways. And an Andretti car in a Honda aero kit at Indianapolis admittedly pretty much drove itself. And in 2017, <laughs> there was we had six cars. And for the majority of that race, we were one through five. It was myself, Takuma Sato, Ryan hunter Fernando, and Marco. And we were all in contention to win that race. And so he did a good job, obviously, learning something new, a new skill very quickly. But I think that we all saw it in 2018. You can be a two-time world champion, and it doesn't matter. Like, you got to have the equipment. you got to have the car. Because for those who don't know, he didn't even qualify for the race. And, and that obviously wasn't a reflection on Fernando. But I think that when he showed up in 2017, everyone was like, oh, my God, he, he figured it out, and, and, and he's going to win this race, and he's so good. It's like, well, yes, for sure. But also, like, these cars in that time period were, were the class of the field. Um, so I got to reap the benefits of that. Um, Fernando did for the times that he was winning until his engine let him down. Um, but yeah, it's a car-driven event for sure. Did anything surprise you about Alonso? What surprised me was his his openness and his adaptation to American racing and, and the American fan culture that exists. You know, Formula One, as we all know, is a very kind of restricted environment. They, they separate the fans from the drivers and the teams. IndyCar is the exact opposite of that. And I think we were all expecting him to be a little bit like taken aback by it all. And he fit right in and he loved every second of it, I think. And he was a great, a great teammate and a great sport about it all. And, and he was a lot of fun to have. And is it true that you all have barbecues in the RV park at the back of the paddock? And, and did yeah. Fernando join in? And, and was he one of the gang? He did. He did in his in his own kind of capacity with his own entourage of people. But yeah, no, he he participated and he didn't have any sort of chip on his shoulder. He was there and, and was trying to learn and ask questions and, and relied upon us um, to, to help him in, in any capacity that we could. And yeah, I mean, he was he was nothing but a, a benefit to the team, I think, as a whole. So Michael Andretti tried to buy Sauber Alfa Romeo last year. It didn't work out for various reasons. And he's now come back and said, look, guys, 
I can do this. 2024, I just need the FIA's blessing. We're still waiting on that. But back to my earlier question, he's already said he wants an American driver in one of at least one of his cars. Alexander, you have Formula One experience. I want you in one. I'm pretending I'm Michael Andretti, by the way. I want you in one of my cars. What would you say? I mean, that's... Uh, and that, he'll probably listen to this. Yeah, so that, yeah, this, yeah, is yeah. My, <laughs> this is our advert. That's a hard question to, to answer. I think um, here's the thing. That is maybe one of the one things aside from Toto calling... Right. I always said, oh, I'm never going to go back unless it's with a race winning car. And the odds of that happening are literally zero. So I'm not going back. Being able to continue driving for Michael and someone that I know and have such a great friendship and relationship with on and off the track, I think would maybe sway that decision a little bit. But with that being said, he also has access to Colton, who is seven years younger than me. So I I don't really know that that conversation would ever happen. But if it did, I, I think. Coming from Michael, it would have to be a much more thought about answer than just an immediate no if, for example, a Sauber or Williams were to call. I saw a hilarious video of you and Colton driving a Honda, what was it? I think we. Type R. Type R, Civic Type R, was it? He's driving, you're in the passenger seat. (laughs) We got got in a lot of trouble for that. (laughs) Oh, did you? Where was it? Was it Watkins Glen? I couldn't quite work no, out. Which... So it, was at, it was at Portland um, last year, and um, they wanted us to like talk and advertise about the car and everything, and we just ended up laughing the entire time. And we were only supposed to do one lap, and we did like four, and we got we got our hands slapped a little bit after that. But I'm glad that someone saw it. I didn't know that they even released that, so that's yeah, that's good to yeah. hear. <laughs> but uh, do you know, it was quite a fascinating insight into your relationship with Colton and that I very much felt watching you two that, you know, you were the, and it's true, you are the experienced guy, whereas he was the sort of younger guy, almost looking to you for advice, acceptance, I don't know. I I just thought it was an interesting dynamic between the two of you. But how quick is Colton Herter? Oh, very quick. Um, I have to work my butt off to to try and to try and beat him. And, And he's done an amazing job, especially the past two years. You know, I think when he came in as a rookie, his speed was evident, but he still had a lot of things to kind of iron out. And he was able to do that very quickly. And he's now, you know, a threat every weekend. And I think that him and I, plus Roma, can have a really good shot at the championship as a, as a whole this year. So it's, ex- it's exciting um, to think about. It's going to be pretty, pretty interesting to see how the three of our relationships change as, you know, hopefully we get to that point at the, at the latter half of the year, because I, I kind of experienced that with Ryan, uh, Hunter Ray in 2018, you know, him and I were, were kind of in contention for the championship with, with Scott Dixon. And, you know, Ryan and I went from being pretty close to, to not really talking to each other much as we got to the second half of the year. And, and I think that's how it should be, you know, ultimately, as teammates, you know, you you do help each other, I think, a lot more than you do in Formula One because that's just the environment. That's the way that specifically Michael wants his team to be run. So there's a lot of sharing of information. But when you get down to the nitty-gritty of it, that's still the same as F1, the person you want to meet, you want to beat the most. Um, so I think that, you know, Colton's raised, forced me to kind of raise my level and and we're going to be fighting each other for for a lot this year. Great. And and for people listening who want to know what kind of a team Andretti operates uh, with your F1 experience, do you think the mentality is right inside the team to to succeed in Formula One? So that's that's an interesting question. And I don't really I don't really know, because aside from Michael and, and his, you know, the, the, the kind of his business partner, I don't know his exact title, but J.F. Thornman, who's kind of been his right hand for forever. I, I think they would really be the only people that are involved in, in the F1 program. The rest of the people based in Indianapolis, they're all they're all IndyCar people. So, you know, in terms of the way that he runs his organization, I think if you look down all of the different categories that they race in from IndyCar to all of the, you know, U.S. feeder series to Formula E to VA supercars to what they had in Mexico to what they do in karting with the welding kids, like, 
Andretti is Autosport is the largest motorsport organization in the world, right? And I think that he has success in every category that he competes in. And I think that that kind of speaks for itself in terms of the actual operation of it. I, I don't know because I don't know that I've, mm. I've ever met those people or that those people even exist yet. I'm so pleased you mentioned uh, what's going on in Australia with supercars because I did want to ask you about your little foray down there a couple of years ago to do the to do Bathurst. Yeah. Well, let's. I want to talk about some of the crazy stuff you've done. Right? How was Bathurst? So, the, <laughs> if I didn't have access to timing and scoring, I would have been like, "That was the best weekend of my life." But I, I did, and I struggled immensely. For two reasons. One, I had never at this point driven anything with a roof. And yeah, number two, I had never raced anything where you had to like heel and toe shift. So I'd never right foot braked a race car. Hey, hang on, hang on. Even even back in in, in the junior formulas. No. It was all sequential. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking Formula Masters here and things like that. Yeah, that well, was still also paddle shift. Like Oh wow. Okay, like Formula yeah. BMW had a clutch pedal, but like it was sequential. So you didn't have to you didn't have to blip or anything. Um or you did, but you could left or break. Anyways. Old school. So I had to learn all of that at Bathurst, which is probably one of the more challenging tracks on the planet in a very short period of time with very limited practice. So we we got our butts kicked. Um, it's plain and simple. I love the experience. I think that race is amazing. I think V8 supercars are, are awesome. Michael asked if I would go back and do it again. And it was a hard no, unless I get to do the kind of the Bathurst 12 hour. So for me, I, I would only consider doing it again if I got to go back in a GT3 car, learn the track, first of all, and have some sort of confidence in you know where to find lap time and, and how to drive around Bathurst, and then go back there with with a car and and kind of adapt that to to a different car. But to learn both of those things on a weekend and to qualify in the rain, it was a it was a it was a big big task, big learning curve. <laughs> awesome. Now, most challenging racetrack you've ever been on, right? So you've Bathurst, we've called, of course, Indianapolis. Yeah. I've seen I've seen you doing laps of the Nürburgring Nordschleife, Elkhart Lake. What is it? What is the track for you? It's Bathurst. You know, I think you you have the speeds of a of a very fast road course with the confines of the street circuit and the most elevation you'll ever see on a racetrack. I think Bathurst ticks all the boxes from from the challenging standpoint. It's very very hard to get it right there. And and it was, it was an amazing experience to be able to say, yes, I can beat in the Bathurst 1000. But yeah, it was, it was certainly a humbling experience at the same time. All right. Now, what about another 1000, the Baja, right? I've been to La Paz. I love that part of the world. Cannot imagine driving one of those. Uh, can I even call it a truck or is that disrespectful? I don't know what you call it. No, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a truck. It's a, it's a trophy track. How insane is that race? And how, um, what does it mean to you to have won it? So growing up in California, fairly close to Mexico, and I knew about the Baja 1000. I never attended it. But through my relationship with Honda and the fact that they had a Honda Ridgeline off-road truck that competed in the event, I kind of would always broach the subject every off-season. And, and finally in 2018, they were like, yeah, you know what? Come down, come do it with us. And I instantly fell in love with with off-road racing and everything that racing in Mexico is about. I love the culture of it. I love the experience. I love I love how it's still an event that seems like it's stuck in the 80s. What, from a safety point of view? Or what, what do you mean by yes. stuck in the 80s? Yeah, yes. right. <laughs> everything. Um, you know, SCORE, which is the sanctioning body, they do a, they do a good job with making it as safe as they can, but ultimately it's, we're talking about 1200 miles of farmland and road and mountains and beaches. Like you can't make it safe. Like they, they try to have some sort of search and rescue plan, but ultimately you're never in radio service. Like it's the most high risk thing I've ever done in my life. Right. And I've done it now three times. And so for me, like 18 was a kind of like, okay, we learned 19, we were leading and we crashed when we were leading 2020, I couldn't go because COVID and scheduling and everything. And so 2021, I went back and I was like, we have to win because I have to like just tick this off my list and then I'm done. 
because, you know, through the whole experience, I, I love it and I hate it all at the same time, just because you're driving like this massive toy is what it feels like. It's, it, it's just a huge, huge toy with almost a thousand horsepower and it weighs 6,000 pounds and it has 60 inches of suspension travel. It can drive over a building. Like it's just, you can do whatever you want with it. But the flip side of that is because you can do all these things, like you get put in some pretty interesting situations. So I drove this past year um, from kind of 1 a.m. to 8 a.m. And I kind of had to climb through the mountains, go down to the coast. So I had to deal with morning fog. The visibility was horrendous. There, there was booby traps on my section set up by the locals. Like it's, it's chaos, but it's, it is amazing when you're doing it for sure. I mean, what an amazing experience. It also proves, Alex, just what a versatile driver you are. You're sort of like you're turning into Fernando Alonso. You just want to go and you're going to be doing the Dakar with him before we know it. That is that is on the list for sure. Um, <laughs> but it, it was great to be able to cross that off. That was kind of a, a highlight of last year, obviously winning um, Daytona in 24 hours was was great as well. Um, Lamar is on my list um, to go back there. I raced there in 2013, but obviously with the new regulations with LMDH and hypercar kind of con- converging, you know, I think there'll be an opportunity there in the future. So there's, there's still things to play for, but ultimately for 2022, you know, I'm just looking for IndyCar to, to kind of get back on track to, to what it was in years past. You talked about uh, the safety of, of that Baja 1000, and it brings me on to something I wanted to ask you about with regards to IndyCar and the aero screen. Because when Formula One was working out what to go with, whether they run with the halo, or they did test the aero screen. Red Bull tried it. Tell us about the aero screen in terms of visibility, how it changes the feel of the car, I suppose. Does it having that weight up high? Yeah. So I think, you know, there was there was a lot of incentive globally for open wheel motorsports to get some sort of head protection. There was just too many head related injuries serious injuries that were happening. I think there was there was a desperate search for solutions. I think Formula One went their way with the halo. IndyCar felt that they wanted to kind of go a step beyond that and implement the aero screen. I, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I 100% believe that, that head protection is important. I, I'm, I'm thrilled that IndyCar, that Formula One, that the junior series, they've all implemented this and, and looked after you know, drivers and, and their families, ultimately, um, as individuals and people, instead of just, you know, race car drivers that you put in a race car. I think all of that is positive. Um, I think the aero screen has a number of benefits, but like anything in, in life, you know, there's, there's no free lunch, right? There's going to be cons and, and downsides. And I think that there's a couple issues with the aero screen. The visibility is phenomenal. I think they, they did an amazing job with the technology behind it with Red Bull's technologies, they, they were involved in the designing of the screen. The glass is incredibly resilient and strong. I think that ticks all the boxes. I think we, we miss a trick in terms of cooling. Cars are now incredibly hot, so everyone has to run like a, basically a cool suit, like similar to what we run in V8 supercars. The, the weight has gone up substantially, and not only has the weight gone up, but it's moved the weight distribution forward and it's also raised the center of gravity because it's, it's up high as well. So it's added almost 60 pounds, which in motorsports, I mean, that's, that's a pretty big number. So uh, I think that, you know, it's, it's certainly changed the dynamic of the car. It's changed the experience of driving it from behind the wheel, but ultimately it's the same for everyone. You know, everyone had to, had to put the screen on. Um, we've all had to adapt to it. And, and it's just something that, that we're all learning to live with. Like I said at the start, the period before Alex's Formula One debut was dramatic, featuring false starts, behind-the-scenes power moves and tragedy. I remember being at the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa in August 2014 and hearing the unexpected news that Alex would be driving for Manor in the first practice session. It seemed Manor were promoting Alex from test driver to race driver for that weekend due to what the team described as contractual issues with Max Chilton. Here's how Alex remembers it. It all kind of started on the Thursday um, of, of the race weekend. And about three o'clock, 
I got pulled aside um, and it was asked, are you ready to, to race this weekend? And I was like, yeah, of course. And they were like, okay, well, we don't leave the track yet. We'll get back with you like in an hour. So I can, guess, I, can I say, this yeah. is, this is manner talking, is it? No, this, this is manner. Yeah. And so I kind of sat in the corner for an hour with my dad and was like stressed out and excited and freaking out and all this stuff. And finally got, okay, yep. You're going to, you're racing this weekend. Do you have all your stuff? And like, is everything sorted? And was like, yes. And so I went through the whole process of kind of doing the, the photos and videos for FOM and the broadcasts and everything and did some initial interviews and met with all the engineers and stayed until like I think it was eight or 9 PM that night and came back the next morning and, you know, did the debrief or did the briefing in the morning, FP1, FP2, um, got in the car for FP1. Everything was fine. Went according to plan for the most part and came in and went to get weighed and came back and got pulled aside. And they were like, thank you. Um, but you're, you're out of the car. And they were like, it's nothing that you did. We are just as surprised as you are, but you're done. And I was like, okay, John Booth and Graham, yeah, Graham Loud. So they were very gracious with how they delivered the information. They were very human about it. Obviously I was, I was disappointed and Max got back in the car. Max or his partners, funders, whatever, hadn't paid yet. And this was kind of their leverage of like, if you don't pay, he doesn't drive. And they called his bluff. And so ultimately I got put in the car as bait. I was the pawn in the middle of it. And then when they realized that they would actually remove him from the car, they wired the money. So <laughs> there I was back to again. Welcome to the crazy world of Formula One. But what that did do, Alex, was it, it, you know, it, it put you in the debrief room with Jules Bianchi. Tell us a little bit about him as a driver and as a person, just your experiences of Jules. I first met Jules in 2010 when um, I was driving for, for ART and GP3 and he was driving for them and GP2, he has been part of the ART family for, forever. And I got to know him very well then. And then we, we became friends because I, for a period of time, lived in England with Jean-Eric Byrne and obviously John Eric and Jules were close, just they you know, grew up together and we're both French and, and all this stuff. And Jules just became someone that I, I massively looked up to um, based on his success in kind of the junior formula. And, and, and he was the, in a lot of respects, he was the, the guy, like he was, he was one of those one percenters that we talk about. And I would put him in the same breath as, as Max in terms of his raw ability and talent and, he won everything he competed in, and, and very few people were able to to do that. And obviously, you know, Ferrari held him in incredibly high regard. And you know, Jules and I, we were just we were both kind of we did a lot of things together. I don't know how it always ended up that we did it together, but we did a lot of track days together, and we did a lot of like customer experiences together, and ended up just spending time together. And I got to actually sit right seat with him in Silverstone in like a radical in 2013 or something. And we were doing this, this promo video and I got to witness firsthand like him as a, as a racing driver and, and the talent that he had. And, you know, for us as racing drivers, it's very hard to sit right seat with someone. But in that instance, it was like, this is pretty cool. Like, what can I, what can I learn from this guy? Through his whole whole time at Manor and being with a team that ultimately was, you know, not up to his level of, of talent and what he could do, but it was all he he saw everything with a with an eye towards the future, and he was never, you know, prideful about his talent that it was obvious that he had and that he knew that he had, um, and he was just kind of waiting his turn every day, putting his best foot forward um, to, to help the team and, and to represent himself in the best way possible. And, and he was an amazing person from that standpoint, obviously a talented race car driver, but just a, a really wonderful guy. And, you know, it was, it was horrible for me to kind of be a part of that weekend in Suzuka as, you know, a reserve driver, if you will, for a manner. And the, for the whole team, like that was a, that was a really, really, horrible time um, for, for all of us. And I'll never forget kind of on the back of that, we were going to Sochi. That was the next weekend. And I was the, the reserve driver, right? And so it was then my 
job, if you will, or obligation to to brace that car. That entire time I was with, I was with Joe Sayward. I was with, I was on the flight with Joe and I was with um, Tracy, I forget her last name, who's the, the marketing lady. Tracy Novak. Tracy Novak. Yeah. It was either Heathrow or wherever we were. And I was just like, I don't, I hate this. I don't want to debut like this. Like this is, this is like, we were all kind of just still in tears about the whole situation. And they were like, yeah, we, we know we get it. Um, you need to do it because you need to do it for yourself, but also you need to do it for the team and, and all this stuff. And so we went through the whole process and ultimately it came to be that I was entered to race that car. We all made the decision as a, as a group out of respect for the family that that was way too fast and way too soon. And that was a huge relief for me to not, to not have to drive his car in Sochi that weekend. Cause it just, it didn't, it didn't feel right in any, in any aspect. So that was kind of the beginning of my really good relationship with everyone at Manor and, and Marusha. And it's a very tragic way to say that it was a beginning of a good relationship, but ultimately I started to, to really have a connection with the, with those people on a, on a personal level. And he left an amazing mark on that team. I think that everyone that worked with him loved him. How difficult was it for you to go and drive that car at, at Suzuka a year later, 2015? actually race that car it it wasn't as it wasn't difficult at that point you know i think we as a, as a group at that point had had kind of had closure we had all kind of just talked to the bianchi family we had all attended his memorial there there was a lot of positive things that happened for us as a, as a team and a community with with his family and so going there we knew that you know, we had not only the family's blessing, but it's something that Jules, I mean, he'd want the team to still be racing his his two cars and something that he'd worked so hard for to help develop the team and score the team's first points. And, you know, that was that was Jules' team. So, you know, we went there and, and wanted to, to obviously do him proud. But the the trauma of it all was really in the weeks and months after that. And a huge part of the reason why the team didn't, didn't finish the season. I mean, ultimately they didn't finish 2014 and there was a lot of chaos around me that, that happened with that. You know, there was, there was, it looked like there was the potential the team was going to kind of make their return for the season finale in Abu Dhabi. And there was a lot of interesting things that occurred in, in kind of a 72 hour period. But um, ultimately, you know, once we got through, through all that, you know, the team was, was certainly different without him, but it was different because, you know, we had all felt as though his his family and his legacy had been honored and we were going to continue representing him in the best way possible. Did you ever question whether you wanted to continue, just continue being a racing driver? Because was this the first time you'd been exposed to what can ultimately happen? So 2014, so that, that was added to the list of things, um, but it didn't really take away my interest of, of racing being a racing driver, it certainly took away my interest of racing in Europe, just in general. You know, the winter of 2014, I went and I was meeting with IndyCar teams. You know, I met with Michael, I met with Sam Schmidt, which is now McLaren. Um, I met with Dale Coyne Racing. I met with a bunch of teams to try and find a ride for 2015. Is this because you wanted to come home effectively is was that the motivation no there was just a lot there was a lot that happened in 2014 you know i had a very negative end to the relationship with with caterham once they changed ownership i then you know got the opportunity to to be involved with with manor that started out very positive in budapest and it was a great thing we had the spa situation which was a, a roller coaster of emotions obviously we've discussed suzuka and Sochi. Um, there was then the potential that I was going to make the debut with Manor in Austin in 2014, which ultimately didn't happen. And then, you know, I didn't have a GP2 ride for 2015. I didn't really have anything. And I had finished the lease on my, my, uh, my flat in England. And I was packing my stuff and moving back to the States in 2014. I was going to see what, what the world was going to bring. And the day that I was moving everything out, I get a phone call from, from John Booth. And he's like, we're going to Abu Dhabi and you're racing. 
And I was like, okay. They were like, go, it's going to happen. And so I'm like, oh my God, here we go. Going to finally make my debut in November of 2014. After, you know, the Sochi chaos and then Austin thinking it was going to happen. And then, okay, here we are. Third time's the charm. Well, fourth time if you count spa. And so I get on the flight. I'm back in economy. I don't care. It was the last ticket. It doesn't matter. I'm studying all the video and data that I have from GP2 and looking at everything. And I land to a voicemail saying, oh, we weren't able to get everything there, but you can, you can stay there for the weekend or whatever. That was, that was for me, that was the one that kind of, I, I was like, I'm done. Like, I don't, this, is, this isn't worth it anymore. Like, I just, I'll go race something else. Like, this clearly isn't meant to be. <laughs> Alex. I'm with you. I'm with you. I just like I, I would have. I totally understand yeah. that emotion. I was like this is this is this is stupid. So I then I then went and um, tried my hand at getting an IndyCar ride, and you know we were very close to, to having a deal with Dale Coyne, and we were we we're going to go in that direction. And then I got a phone call from Racing Engineering, which you know was one of the premier GP2 teams at the time, and and they had been for a while, and this was the first conversation with an actual race winning GP2 team that I had ever had. And, and they offered me an incredible deal and we had to go find the budget for it, but we were able to, and I was like, okay, well, this is an actual opportunity to race winning championship winning team. So I'd be crazy not to take it. So that's why we went back to GP2 in 2015, finished second. And then that was the same year. Obviously we, we finally, you know, took, took a green flag in formula one, but, uh, yeah, it was a weird, it was a weird journey to to get to that point. Man, that is just an extraordinary story. And then, of course, the Andretti situation for 2016. So it's kind of meant to be, wasn't it? Really, when you look at how it panned out. Yeah. Of all the cars you've driven in your career, which has been the best? Because there is one. There's one little episode that we haven't talked about, and I was wondering if you'd say that is the best car you've ever driven. What the the BMW from two thousand nine? Yeah, I mean for sure because you know I I got to drive you know the Caterham multiple times in free practice sessions. I got to drive it when it was the V eight. I got to drive the Manor when obviously it was the, the hybrid, um, and they were still Formula One cars, but ultimately they were kind of B spec Formula One cars in in a lot of ways. But I got to drive or, or test the. 2009 BMW Sauber in Hereth. I remember 82 laps around there and your neck held up pretty well. I seem to remember. Yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty cooked after 82 laps around there. Um, and there's two things I remember from that day. One was when I showed up, they were like, Oh yeah, we have 10 sets of tires. The most of the sets of tires I'd ever had in a day before was three or four. So I basically got a, a new set of tires every time I went out, which was awesome. Um, and the second thing was on the track walk the day before they were like, yeah, you know, every time someone new or some junior driver gets in this car, like we always laugh at how for turn one, you know, they break so early and then they have to kind of accelerate up to the corner. And I was just like, oh yeah, what a chump. Like, I'm not going to do that. That's the last thing I'm going to do. And I didn't. I, I locked up and went straight on instead. So like I just did the opposite, but no, to, to be able to drive that car around her ref, which is obviously incredibly high speed and high commitment and an amazing racetrack was, was very, very special. Whoa. It's hey, amazing memories, amazing memories. And Alex, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you and, and sort of just relive it actually relive it all again. I hope, I hope you've enjoyed reliving it in a, in a funny kind of way. No, I have. I mean, there, there's obviously times, you know, we talked about some of the, the challenging times, but ultimately like I got to, as a American kid live in Europe from the age of 17 to 25 and, and race all over the world. And made some incredible friends and, and met some amazing people and got to ultimately racing formula one as this kid from Northern California. So, um, it was, it was a very special time in my life and, and obviously shaped who I am as a person today. And, you know, very grateful for, for all of those memories and opportunities, um, that I was fortunate enough to have and, and also grateful to kind of end up in a roundabout way, end up back at home. 
um, and, and get to race here and race in America and race in what I think is a pretty amazing championship. So it all, it all worked out for, for the good in the end. A lot of people listening to this will be saying, come on, Alex, we, we wish you the best of luck. Get you back on that winner's rostrum this year. And I hope we might see you in either Miami or, or Austin this year as well, huh? I will 100% be in Miami. Alex, thanks so much for your time. It's brilliant to catch up. See you in Miami. My pleasure, man. Look forward to it. It was great to catch up with Alex. He's so articulate and so passionate about motorsport and his passion for Formula One is infectious, even if he hasn't driven a car for seven years. In that chat, he gave great insights into the challenges that young drivers have to overcome in order to get a break in Formula One. The end of the 2014 season was incredibly challenging for him in so many ways, yet he kept his head down and got his big break in the end. Alex, many thanks for your time, and I really look forward to seeing you again in Miami this weekend. Now, what are you listening to next? How about my chat with NASCAR legend Jeff Gordon on the time he drove a Formula One car? Or what about F1 and IndyCar star Juan Pablo Montoya? And if racing history is your scene, listen to the triumphant and tragic story of America's first Formula One world champion, Phil Hill. Use the links in the episode description to hear these and other related episodes from the Beyond the Grid archive. And please remember to send in your thoughts and stories about Alex Rossi. Did you see him race in Formula One? Or perhaps you were there to see him win the Indy 500 on debut in 2016. Let me know and I'll read out some of your messages next week. Which brings me on to what you sent in after last week's episode with Alex Albon. Alex was very open and honest, wasn't he? And let's start with this from the auto connoisseur. What a lovely guy Alex Albon is. When I saw that he was this week's guest, I had to listen immediately. He's so refreshingly humble, and I think people have been unfairly hard on him. Formula One is incredibly competitive right now, and I think his generation will prove to be one of the strongest that we've ever seen. He's had incredible competition throughout his whole career, and I think time will show us just how good he is. Well, that's an interesting point that you make about the competitiveness of this younger generation, Mr. Auto Connoisseur. And Alex has beaten them all at different stages of his career, hasn't he? Let's see what comes next for Alex Albon. And Andy Franklin had this to say. Brilliant episode, this. I think Alex Albon might be my new favourite driver. Authentic and open does feel like the modern crop of Formula One drivers are open, transparent, humble and, in fact, friends. Well, friends, Andy, if you count throwing Charles Leclerc under the bus about the golf. In all seriousness, though, you're right. Alex is a fantastic driver and he's very authentic. And let's do one more. Let's hear from Vanessa Newby. Having been in a similar position in my own career, I really related to and appreciated Alex's honest take on the emotional struggle of losing your job a year after getting your first big break. I was thrilled when he came back and I truly wish him so much success. Well, it's good to hear from you, Vanessa, and thanks for sharing those thoughts and best of luck to you in your career. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Alexander Rossi. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>